3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. It's a chilly morning this Thursday, the 6th of August, but hopefully you're keeping safe and warm. I'm with you solo today, but I can promise we've got a great show coming up as usual. So first up, we'll hear part of a webinar discussion hosted by the Melbourne Law School on Black Lives Matter. This was facilitated by Larissa Barrett and features Alison Whitaker, Eddie Cubillo, Amy McGuire, and George Newhouse speaking about campaigns to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody, the media's role in supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, and reflections on the legal profession's role in changing the criminal justice system. Next, Max speaks with journalist Royce Kermelovs on the flaws and dangers of the Australian government's COVID-safe contact tracing app. After that, we play a recording by Samad Abdul from the Manus Recording Project Collective's new project, Where Are You Today? Every day for a month, starting this past Saturday, the 1st of August, subscribers will receive a text message with a new 10-minute audio recording from Farhad Bandesh, Farhad Ramati, Samad Abdul, Shamindan Kanapati, Tanus Selvaraj, or Yasin Abdullah. These men, seeking asylum by boat, were forcibly transferred to Manus Island by the Australian government nearly seven years ago. Now they are held in hotels or detention centres in Port Moresby, Melbourne, or Brisbane. You can subscribe to the project by texting HELLO to 0488 845 951. Finally, we'll hear audio from a Free Palestine Melbourne Forum on July 22nd on the Palestinian struggle in the era of annexation. We'll listen to excerpts from analyst and former legal advisor Diana Butu and writer and academic activist Dr. Yara Hawari, both of whom joined the forum live from Palestine, as well as Melbourne-based journalist Maher Mograbi. And now we'll go to the news with Kate Kelly. Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. Flights to Uluru have been suspended after the Mutujulu Aboriginal community worried about the risks to locals from visitors flying in from interstate COVID-19 hotspots blockaded the gates to the park. The 39 tourists who arrived at the Ulara Resort on Saturday on a Jetstar flight will now be flown back to Brisbane. The blockade by the Mutuldula Community Aboriginal Corporation forced Parks Australia to close the gates before they met with the Yalara Resort managers. The blockade followed the arrival of a Jetstar flight from Brisbane on Saturday with 42 passengers on board. So Brisbane was declared a coronavirus hotspot on Friday evening. On arrival, under the Northern Territory's strict COVID regulations, three passengers were taken to Alice Springs for mandatory quarantine, but the other 39 passengers were taken to the Yulara Resorts. Members of the Mutuljulu community said they would maintain the blockade at the gates of the Uluru Katajitu National Park until the 39 visitors were tested for COVID-19 and given the all clear. 
a little closer to home. Nurses have written to Daniel Andrews asking to urgently know what's being done to protect and care for Victorian nurses as more than 730 health workers in the state remain sick with active infections of COVID-19. The letter to the Premier states the situation is still inadequate months after the outbreak started. It was written by a member of the College of Mental Health Nurses, Claire Hudson-McCauley, who detailed stories shared by nurses, including one nurse working in a surgeon's room who said only surgeons were provided with protective N95 masks. Hudson-McCauley said she had not received a response to the letter since sending it to the Premier's office, the Greens and Federal Government last Thursday. The Victorian Health Department won't release a breakdown of the hospitals with active COVID-19 infections among staff. And the Australian Unemployed Workers Union is calling for a strike against pointless and punitive job agencies. So the group which represents unemployed workers is calling for people receiving JobKeeper and other welfare payments to go on strike. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is organising the action to protest the imminent return of mutual obligations that require people to apply for jobs that just aren't there in order to qualify for their payments. So the union is calling for mutual obligations to be paused until the end of the year, accusing government-funded job agencies of profiting off poverty. The AUW has been around since 2014 and now has around 16,000 members, making it bigger than the Maritime Union of Australia and the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. So the aim of the strike, according to the group, is to hit lying job agencies hard and do everything in our power to deprive these publicly funded billionaire poverty profiteurs of revenue. In response, Minister Cash has called the strike bizarre in both practical and theoretical terms. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, 855am. Now it's time to head into a song and we're going to play a new one by Jess B. And this one is called Shut Up. Just listen, you can't level with the heights we hidden. That girl there, she a catch, no fishing. And if you take a bait, you will learn your lesson. I've been around the block for a minute now. Bigger vision on a mission, better woman now. Ain't it funny how these squares wanna circle around? Cause we got more business than a chicken house. I be in it like a clinic, wouldn't work while I'm in it. A lot of thugs around me, like the green, no spinach. Lot of bitter looking ones, they react like physics. Lot of highs, lot of lows, but we real, no gimmicks. Yeah, so guess this, no guess this. I will make a bitch quake in the sketches. Yeah, I got a long list of agendas. So I do it, do it, do it till I'm Breathless, catch up. I will come through with the thunderstorms And I will come through with the underdogs And you will open this and just sit up tall All I need you to do is just shut up more And then listen Just listen Just listen Just listen Shut up more and then listen Some of y'all need to just muzzle up I got hits to throw, you wanna muscle up? I ain't never tripped, baby, watch me double dodge Yeah, stir up the pot, let it bubble up They wanna do us like banks, come and fuck up the fun I've been down from the jump, so I'm getting it done I 
I got drip, guess I'm under the pump Just know I'm here for my bag at the end of the month Look at him go, that's magic Big bold bitches never passive You can feel the glow dynamic And you try too hard, you tragic I said I've been around the block for an age now And I fight for the spot, never lay down Oh, you know we hot, better pay now Big yes, no stress, no breakout I will come through with the thunderstorms And I will come through with the underdogs And you will open this and just sit up tall All I need you to do is just shut up more And then listen Just listen. Yeah, shut up. Just listen. Shut up. Just listen. Yeah, shut up more and then listen. Shut up. Just listen. Shut up more and then I will come through with the thunderstorms and I will come through with the underdogs and you will open this and just sit up tall. All I need you to do is just shut up more and then listen. Just listen. Just then, we heard a new one from Jess B. That track was called Shut Up. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, Thursday morning breakfast. And now we're going to play part of a webinar discussion hosted by Melbourne Law School on 16 July 2020 about the Black Lives Matter movement in so-called Australia. The discussion is facilitated by Larissa Barrent and features Alison Whitaker, Eddie Cabillo, Amy McGuire and George Newhouse. First up, we hear Amanda Porter, Senior Fellow of Indigenous Programs at Melbourne Law School, introducing the discussion. It's been uh, close to 30 years since the publication of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and despite a significant body of research, hundreds of recommendations on the ways forward, the rate of Indigenous incarceration has been uh, increasing since the publication of the Royal Commission in 1991. Um, there's been uh, a massive number of uh, deaths in custody uh, with no convictions and rarely disciplinary action or closure for families. And faced with this apparent lack of police accountability, there's important questions about the implications for the idea of rule of law, the rule of law in Australia, and for the ways forward in preventing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody. Uh, just a few uh, Final tips um, in terms of today's helping today's webinar run smoothly. Um, we're fortunate to have today a stellar panel, uh, including uh, four speakers with considerable expertise. So in the interests um, we've decided of time management, we won't be taking questions today. So if you could please just um, disregard the, the Q&A section of the Zoom. Um, and secondly, this discussion um, is going to be recorded and it will be replayed on Speaking Out, which is broadcast on ABC National Friday at 8pm. And on that note, I'm very privileged to introduce distinguished Professor Larissa Barrent, who is Director of Research at Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research and Professor of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. She is a lawyer, academic, film and documentary maker, novelist and tireless advocate for Indigenous justice. And in addition to her considerable accolades, Larissa has been a passionate and loyal advocate for bereaved families, including most notably as a long-standing advocate for families in Bowerville. So please join me in welcoming Larissa Barrent. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Um, I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and join in the acknowledgement of country that I'm sure we're all doing in our own way, wherever we are. I'm really honoured to be hosting this forum. Um, it has some of who I think are the best thinkers 
uh, on these issues in the country. So we have um, as our distinguished guest, Eddie Cabillo, who's a Larrakia lawyer, has been a tireless advocate for Aboriginal rights um, and is a senior Indigenous fellow at Melbourne Law School. George Newhouse, who's the principal solicitor of the National Justice Project and adjunct professor at Macquarie University. Uh, Amy Maguire, uh, a Durrambul and South Sea Islander journalist, one of the best Indigenous journalists in the country, and co-host of Curtain, which centres around the wrongful conviction of an Aboriginal man who's been locked up for 26 years. And Alison Whittaker uh, is a Gomorrah poet um, and a senior legal researcher at the Jambana Institute of Indigenous Education and Research. So, as Amanda Porter said, an amazing lineup. So. The death of George Floyd has drawn parallels between the case of, of David Dungay, um, but it also, I think, puts the spotlight more generally on deaths in custody in Australia. It did resonate with a lot of us. Eddie, I thought I'd ask you first for your personal reaction and your thoughts when you saw those images of George Floyd that went viral. Yeah, yeah thanks, Larissa. Um, also, I just want to acknowledge all traditional owners on the, on the countries that we all meet on. Um, yeah, look, I, I got very emotional when I saw it. Um, you know, you, you get pretty hardened to the, all this sort of stuff, Indigenous people, when you work in this space and, um, you know, you're continually confronted with it. Um, but then I got really emotional when um, he started to cry out for his mother. And I just I just thought this, this has been happening that long in um, this country. You know, since even... 1788, it's been going on. And, and, and despite, you know, as, as it's been mentioned, there's been a Royal Commission and 339 recommendations, um, the numerous coronals, which people will speak about on here. Um, and the continuation, even after that, is um, those reviews and, and recommendations of, of the deaths that keep happening. Um, it, it just, it just, I wondered where, where's, if, if it's just this country's apathy um, towards our people and our and our, and our and our families that suffer in these conditions. And then I just thought again that, you know, we've had all these recommendations and and discussions and, and, and you know, every year we the same things continually to happen and um, our people and our elders keep, you know, when we you speak to them or you recall, they always tell you that, um, you know, they endured what they did because of um, they wanted change for for the future generations, and and we just continually experience it. And so then I was then you know you sort of get really sad, and but then you get angry, and, and I, I just and I thought um, about my kids and grandkids, and then I thought there's, there's got to be more to this, and you know I, I'm still wondering how we we go forward. Mm. Amy, it always strikes me we have a moment like this and, and the rest of Australia seems to wake up to what Indigenous Australia has been saying for a really long time and your reporting particularly has been really diligent around deaths in custody particularly and victims of crime. I was just wondering what your response was as to why this it's this footage at this time that seems to have sparked a response that cases that you've been reporting on haven't and what you make of the current situation. Um, definitely. I think uh, 
the thing with the footage of George Floyd was it was just so blatant and there was an acknowledgement that there was a clear perpetrator. And I think that when I saw the footage, I also thought of all the, the fact that we've had CCTV footage showing the brutalisation of Aboriginal bodies continually. And I remember Miss Jew's um, footage and the fact the family really had to fight for the coroner to release it and it was released just before Christmas and it was on TV and yet it didn't seem to create the same level of outcry. And I think it, it speaks to the fact that, one, Australia is comfortable with Aboriginal uh, people being in jail. They see Aboriginal people as disposable. Um, they can't understand the reality. I think with George Floyd's death, it was such an obvious uh, blatant case of police brutality. They can't understand the role of state-sanctioned violence and, and the fact that when Aboriginal people end up um, in jail, it's often the result of multiple layers of state-sanctioned violence that have led them there plus the end result. So they don't seem to understand that because obviously their um, privilege and their where they are, their prosperity is built upon that violence. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, about the disposability of Aboriginal lives, the fact we don't look at uh, state-sanctioned violence and also the fact that I know when we see this footage, there's never the calls for the perpetrator. The perpetrator is absent. And I think that's a clear part of it. And so as a result of that, um, Aboriginal people are seen as being responsible for their own deaths um, inside. Um, and CCTV footage, obviously, it's not, um, it's in a private space in a sense. So we have to fight for that footage to be released. So I think there's a whole host of reasons of why um, it doesn't create the same level of outrage. And I think Australia is still not ready to come to terms with what's actually happening and the sheer brutality of the justice system, because I think they can look over at America and say, oh, yeah, but the police are just, look at them over there, you know. And they still see police here as good people, even though we have numerous examples of them acting um, against their own people, against white people as well, you know. We've had several cases in Queensland where police have been involved in um, uh, domestic violence incidents and that's create, come up in the media. So there's still this perception that, that police are at the most, at the heart, protectors because they see themselves in the police. So I think there, there are several reasons behind it, but at its heart, it's about the fact that Aboriginal lives in Australia still don't matter. Um, and Australians really have to come to terms with that and we have to change that, um, that perception. George, I might bring you in now because obviously you'd worked very closely on the David Dungay case and, and were one of the first people who started to articulate the similarities between that case and George Floyd. And I wonder if you could share your observations about that and also the, the, the role the families had to play in that case to get some justice. Technology. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're all on today. And uh, I'm honoured to be invited to this stellar group and uh, uh, I really appreciate the uh, invitation. Um, I, I, I think I was astounded by the similarity between the image of the four officers kneeling and, and, and kneeling mostly on George Floyd and the image of four security officers in Long Bay Prison on uh, David Dungay Jr's back. And I think it was um, that image that really drew Australians' attention to the similarities between the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States and, and what was going on in our own country. I think uh, we live in denial. 
I think, for a whole number of reasons. Uh, Amy's raised one, that our prosperity as a nation is built on the theft of another people's land and on the near destruction of their culture. Um, and I think Australians are blind or intentionally blind um, to what's going on uh, because of the original sin in the creation of our nation. But to answer your question, Larissa, David Dungay died um, on the 29th of December, 2015. I remember the day when the family gave me a call. He was a patient in a hospital. New South Wales is the only state in the country which has um, a prison hospital in most, in all other states and territories. If you're sick, you go to a, a hospital. In New South Wales, you're in a prison hospital. And it was that hybrid sick uh, environment uh, that led to David's death. He was 26 years old. He was a, a proud Dungari man and he was a diabetic. And on the day that he died, he'd registered a high level of, um, of sugar in his blood, but that really, the evidence that we heard at the inquest was that really wasn't going to cause him any you know, serious injury or death. And there was no need for any action to be taken against David. But prison guards got involved unnecessarily in David's death. And we claimed at the inquest on behalf of the family that there was some kind of power struggle going on between the guards who demanded that David give up his one pleasure, a packet of biscuits uh, on some spurious basis that they felt that he might have high blood sugar. That led to a chain of events that ended up in David dying. And um, although there's been many positive recommendations that came out of that inquest, the family are still disappointed because they say, if an indigenous man or four indigenous men had put their weight on a, on, an, on a non-Indigenous man, they would all be in jail today. They would all be in jail. But not a, the, the, the coroner did not make any recommendations to hold anyone accountable for David's death, not even a WorkSafe complaint. Now, the family are quite rightly disappointed and very distressed about what passes for justice in our country. And I think that's one of the the open wounds that we have. Now, we haven't given up. We're still working with the family on seeking justice, but um, I think there's still a lot of unfinished business in that case. Alison, this is an area you cover closely and you've actually done some really important research on the role of linguistics in coronial inquests and the role of language in absolving blame of key actors, especially police and prison guards in relation to deaths in custody. With, with that background and understanding, what are your thoughts around the current uh, media attention on Black Lives Matter? And I'm also interested in your thoughts on whether this is a, a moment of hope, a transformative moment, or whether you think it might just be a temporary reprieve. Mm -hmm. I'm torn because I, I really want this to kind of be a moment of hope for the families that have spent so much time and dedication and expertise in their own right pushing this issue into the Australian public. 
Um, but we've also seen moments like this before, inspired by Black Lives Matter events in the US, um, like what happened in Ferguson after the death of Michael Brown. Um, and unfortunately, the, the momentum has kind of petered out. And I'm really frightened that um, with media reporting increasingly focusing on the Black Lives Matter rallies rather than the asks of those rallies, that we, we kind of risk falling into that same pattern. Um, it's also a concern for me that the, the discussions that are happening in the media are not as driven by families and communities as they ought to be. So families and communities are often invited on uh, as witnesses to what's happening, but they're also experts in their own right. So even um, before this was a matter of public consciousness, I suppose, families um, who have loved ones in prison or had lost loved ones in prison had put out quite a comprehensive plan on how to keep um, mob safe by getting them out of prison uh, and you can check that out it's an open letter on the ALS New South Wales website called clean out prisons um, and other movements as well in the recent months have put out their own plans for how we actually address and give right to I guess our commitment to saying that black lives matter um, but it, it's also a marathon and it's going to take a lot of sustained coverage to keep this in the public consciousness so it's it requires coverage that's both sustained and on the ground. So right now, I don't think many people here would be aware, but there's a current inquest into the death of Tane Chatfield that's going on right now as we speak in the New South Wales Coroner's Court. Uh, and the coverage that I've found from that has principally been from the wire service, AAP. And so what do we do when there's kind of less specific um, media coverage when families are under-resourced um, by state and uh, other uh, legal resources when they go to the coroner's court? And what does it mean when it's really, really difficult to sustain media attention outside of whatever's trending, whatever can be captured in a movement? Um, that said, I hold out a tiny bit of hope because the, the window of acceptable discourse on this is, is really changing. I'm seeing things in public discussions that I would never have dreamt of seeing in 2020. People talking really, really seriously about defunding the police and prison abolition and self-determination, who I'd never heard the words come out of their mouth before. And that's not to say that, that that's a kind of um, backing on their part. There's still so much work to do. But we've managed to get it into the realm of contestable, serious ideas. Uh, and that is a start that has me really, really excited. I was going to ask Amy this question a little down the track, but it feels like it's a good time to bring her back in because there's a fair bit of what Alison said that is about the media and particularly about the, the lack of support for victims of crime. And I think one of the things that's really strong about your reporting, Amy, when you have looked at uh, particularly deaths in custody is that you, you really do focus on the, the, the impact on family and community. And I was wondering if you had any additional thoughts uh, on the issues that Alison had raised, but also um, what you think might be some changes necessary to better support Aboriginal families who have had relatives die in custody and who have to fight so hard and for such a prolonged period of time for justice and for voice. Um, yeah, I think Alison raised a number of really important issues. And for me, it always came down to the fact that families have to fight so hard just to get any um, form of media coverage. And I think we saw that 
in the differences, not to put the two cases against each other, but the differences in Ani Tenya Day's um, inquest and uh, Miss Ma. And it was just incredibly sad because Miss Ma's um, inquest, um, it did not have the coverage that it deserved. And we saw that the narrative on how she um, died and what happened to her case was totally changed from what her family were actually calling for. And the owners shouldn't be on the families to do that work. I know with um, Miss Juice, her uncle Sean Harris had to travel around the country. He slept at the Ten Embassy for two weeks. Um, he got up this huge um, contact list of journalists that he would call um, just to get um, any recognition that, you know, the life of his niece actually mattered and it deserved coverage. But it's not only that, it's about what happens when the coronial inquest actually occurs and, and the way journalists report and they don't... Um, challenge a lot of the uh, biases or the accepted discourse within the coroner's inquest. So we actually need training around how media can actually recognise what's actually happening here in the bigger picture, what's happening in coronial inquests. But I think for me as well, um, when Q&A happened and we had Latona Dungay on national TV calling for the panel to actually back her calls for criminal convictions against the guards, the next day we heard nothing. And in fact, I didn't even really hear the panelists back her claims. And I thought that was just such a missed opportunity. Um, and it wasted, you know, like often we just, we put out the, you know, the sorrow and the grief of these families on display as if it's entertainment and then nothing comes of it. So there's no um, accountability for the media as well. You know, even the fact that a coronial inquest isn't the end result. You know, we want actual outcomes after the coronial inquest. So I think there's just... There's so much that has to be done in relation to media reporting and a lot of the focus is on mainstream media. But for me, it's about actually trying to build up a solid black media because I think it's going to be Aboriginal media who's going to be at every single inquest. So the challenge for me is how we train up a workforce of Aboriginal journalists that are actually trained to do this because I know a lot of the time, you know, you might go, it might be your first time reporting on a coronial inquest. You don't have that um, experience or um, ability um, to actually be able to, sort of understand what's really happening. Um, but just building up um, black media to be able to really contest what's actually happening. I think the focus a lot has been on mainstream media, but we really have to start. Um, I mean, that's that's what black media is about, um, really starting to build up a really solid workforce so we can have journalists at every coronial inquest so the families don't have um, to take on that burden. You know, I, I just, I, I always feel for the families and, and seeing, you know, there may be coverage around an inquest and then, a week later, it's all gone and nothing's changed. And then the next month, another death in custody happens and the cycle starts over again. I mean, that you can't break that trauma or that grief, you know. So I think um, trying to take a lot of that burden off the families as much as possible is really important. Um, yeah, I think there's just so much we have to do as media and sometimes I feel I haven't done enough either. And so, yeah, I think the challenge is just really on to keep ourselves accountable because we are ultimately accountable to our communities. I think you've done a lot <laughs> and certainly given given space for voice for people who are being overlooked by the mainstream media. So um, I think there's a lot of other people who could be doing some heavy lifting as well. Um, and so I want to um, ask you, Eddie, we do put a lot of focus on police, uh, police training. Um, and, you know, obviously Amy's raised some really good points about um, journalistic practices. You've worked at the coalface of the legal system for many, many years now, and you are uh, continuing within uh, your academic work to look at the role of the legal profession. 
And I was wondering if you had, could share your reflections on what role the legal profession should be playing in terms of change. We ask, ask a lot of other professions, but for people who've actually come through law schools, our academics or our lawyers practising, what are the sorts of things that you, that you think um, the profession should be doing and doing better? Yeah, well, you know, we've had that many reports and recommendations made um, advising us to do that. Um, particularly around Aboriginal disadvantage and our, and our over-representation. Um, just unfortunately, government, you know, time after time, they, they just don't, um, they just fail to, to um, properly implement these, these recommendations. Um, big picture, I think there needs to be more empowerment of um, our people to um, be in charge of our, you know, of our own destinies and, and um, have and say on, on what happens. I um, in these in our communities and and, and, else, and elsewhere, um, but we need to be taken seriously. I think um, uh, you know, just just recently, the the Aboriginal Legal Services, uh, the Attorney General's Department did a review on them, and basically, he they ignored their own review to um de, to um you know mainstream their funding and stuff like that. So they're not only trying to do the service provision but they're also trying to survive um so there's all that sort of issues but but i think to bring change in the justice system you know there needs to be recognition and, and actual acceptance that the legal the legal institutions and and the justice system has failed indigenous people um and and i just have to you know probably won't win any friends on this but the legal profession needs to show some leadership and, and, and acknowledge that they have been um, somewhat complicit and, um, you know, they need to end, the, to end their acceptance of the status quo. I mean, don't get me wrong, um, you know, they, they deliver um, submissions and, you know, the, the Law Reform Commission recently done a, a great report um, which government didn't respond to. Um, the Law Council also of Australia recently done a report and it's a great report. But then that's it, um, you know. There's nothing done after when um, people continually ignore it. Um, and I don't say this lightly, but again, is it the apathy and 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 affront to the rule of law and the right of all to be treated equally under this law? I mean, you know, the ever increasing numbers in that of our mob that are incarcerated, you know, child removal, deaths in custody, tell tell the profession that there is an extreme, you know, injustice going on and that more is needed than their basic advocacy. I mean, there's there's more that they can do and I think um, it needs to take a hard line and, and, and at the moment we're not we're not getting that. And, um, you know, every time you raise these sort of issues in, in a forum that uh, you, the people there who can make some make some real change or, or, or look going down a different road, they've... Um, they're too happy to stay in the status quo and, and, and allow things to happen. Um, and, and, and we can be highly even more critical and say, you know, a lot of people are making their money on the back of blackfellas and, and, and also the reality that, you know, the QC ships and, 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 and other, you know, positions in, in, in that system. So it's really frustrating and I, and I, and I really think that it's, it's, it's the profession now that, you know, one of their major principles of law, you know, the rule of law and, and equality before the law is really at, you know, being tested and, and, and where they really are in their profession. 
Just then, we heard part of a webinar discussion hosted by Melbourne Law School about the Black Lives Matter movement in so-called Australia. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855 AM. This morning, we're joined by Royce. Good morning, Royce. Could you introduce yourself to listeners? Yeah, good morning, Max. So my name is Royce Campbells. I'm a journalist and author. I guess I live and work out of Adelaide, but I kind of, I, I write about a lot of, lots of different things. This morning, we're going to be talking about the COVID Safe app, which was launched on April 27th this year in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. You recently wrote an article on the COVID Safe app for the Saturday paper. Could you give us a bit of an overview of that? My reporting on this has been focused very much on kind of the legal and social side of things. So I, in just prior to when the app was launched, I did another story looking at the legal stuff around how 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 the privacy what privacy protections were in place around the information this stuff would collect because ultimately what was happening is the government were putting together a medical app to automate the manual process of contact tracing which is um, a very difficult process but one that has been very effective you know contact tracing is fundamentally a good thing it's the same thing that was used to you know um, used in previous epidemics so the things like the HIV crisis back in the 80s for Ebola more recently so there's nothing really controversial around that and collecting that information um, and if you talk to a lot of the privacy experts in this area they say there's a well-established principle that sometimes you know needs must and when you're dealing with something that's an imminent crisis you know you, the usual expectations towards privacy and that sort of thing kind of have to give way to the fact that we're all confronting a you know a, a highly infectious disease ripping through the community um, so I guess that reporting was interesting because basically it honed in on the fact that for all the promises the government was making, there was no legal way for them to actually guarantee that the uh, information that this app was collecting was then going to was not then going to end up in a you know a database used by the AFP. Um, so after that, I kind of checked out, and then I kind of checked in again like a month a month later, um, which then led to the follow up piece where I kind of spoke to some of the people who were working independently, people who were just you know who came together quite organically, who were independent of government, independent of the development team, and to say, hey, uh, let's do a bit of an autopsy. What happened? And it was a really interesting, and yeah, and what unfolded was a really interesting view into how into a something that isn't itself it could be considered rather innocuous but kind of sat at the intersection of all these competing forces from the use of you know from the from the way it was made and the use of public funds to the use of contractors to just the complete um, mess that was the technical side of things and what was clear is that you had the app it was taken from Singapore so Singapore runs a or uh, developed the first contact tracing app called trace together um, that was an app that specifically looked at yeah that, that did not really kind of was not designed with Apple phones in mind um, and was looking specifically at Android um, and then that allows the Australia, whoever the health, the government health authority is to basically have access to a, access to a person's contacts um, as they've moved around within the last 21 days, which is kind of the infection period. The idea being that if someone is discovered as having, you know, is being diagnosed with COVID, they can then up that, that then gets uploaded and whoever the contact tracers can go back through the system and find, you know, vaguely who they've been in touch with in a more, you know, um, scientific way i guess than going from memory um the problem although i started immediately so in terms of the development um of the covid safe app 
you had, it was originally picked up by the Department of Home Affairs, so the same you know, department that was headed by Peter Dutton that does all the refugee stuff. They picked up development of this uh, with the help of a consulting firm called Boston Consulting Group. Um, within you know, a, a, you know, a week or two, that was then passed off to the Digital Transformation Agency, um, which are responsible for developing new technologies and automating stuff and that sort of thing, because it was, it was, the question was raised, well, why is this with the Department of Home Affairs? It's not really their thing. Um, and then from there, it kind of was built very, very rapidly. So the the whole idea around constructing this was that it was um, constructed as a sprint. So in tech world, people release an app or a piece of software and then, and then update it very quickly as time goes on. So as people go out and deliberately try to find fault or find bugs or find errors, that gets reported to developers. The developers then go on to fix those things in successive series of patches within the first three weeks you know, of release or however long. Um, and the, prob the problem with this, right, is that you're dealing with, uh, again, a medical health app that collects people's movements and, you know, and, yeah, and um, personal information in some fashion and then uh, uh, anonymizes it. Um, and then speaking to uh, 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 Jim Mussared, who is one of the people who were kind of, who one of the kind of just private individuals who led a lot of the independent research into this, um, he was someone who, like, you know, hadn't really followed the, um, build up hadn't really followed the release of this and just kind of came to it as someone who was curious because they knew about the technology from their previous employment um, and a friend called them and said hey listen have you heard about this app and he said yes and he goes and then the friend said all right well if you if you know could what's your thoughts and he said look I don't know anything about it and then the, the friend kept pressing and said listen if if there was going to be an issue with this where would you look um, and lo and behold when it came time for him to look at the code of the app which was released um, with the app uh, it basically, it, all the errors that he identified just off the top of his head were there and more. And from there, it became this kind of um, investigation that was yeah, into like how many ways was this thing broken? Yeah, and if, if I can jump in there and ask, what were some of the, the flaws or the bugs um, that the folks you were chatting to in the tech industry identified with the app? Well, the first thing was, and the primary thing, at least for Jim, was the um, the unique identifiers that are used because basically the app works by cycling back and forth between the server. And to de-anonymize to, to anonymize you, to de-identify you, it gives you a string of numbers that is your identity. And basically, every time the app checks in with a central server, if it doesn't recycle, if it doesn't give you, if, if it recycles those numbers and doesn't give you a new one, it basically means that someone can work. If someone who knows what they're doing can work out who you are every two hours and at that point it's almost like a ping so you know like a, like a bat putting out radar you can then work out whenever someone's phone checks in where they are um, or at least that's how i understand it and then from the, and then there was a suite of other errors from things like you know questions about whether the app even worked on apple phones because it would run but whether it was but, it, but when you well when you check the logs it wasn't collecting any data which meant you know which basically leads to a big question why bother um, and then you've got more significant issues that were found in the time for a start. Uh, the, way the, the way the app deployed Bluetooth, Bluetooth technology pushed Bluetooth technology to its limits, um, which essentially meant that it broke it. Um, and then that, uh, that allowed people, again, who, know, who might know what they were doing, to be able to exploit those um, vulnerabilities in, in the technology. Um, the first serious error 
was the ability, well, there's a number of errors here. So the, one of the first being that the phone was broadcasting, um, you're, you're, when someone downloaded the app, their phone was broadcasting not only the name of the phone, um, and which if it was a, you know, if someone had renamed their phone to something personal, you can identify who held it. Um, and you know, some of the unique identifiers, but then it also turned out that it became possible to, to kind of uh, to run to rig up a system if uh, to jam the Bluetooth signals being put out by the app, effectively shutting it down. But then the more serious error, and the one that was really really critical, was discovered when um, the, the, uh, you know between a group of researchers, including an academic at ANU, um, who were talking about how uh, the you could almost trick the um, a person's phone into pairing the device, tell the phone that the device that you were using was a keyboard, type in a command and essentially take control of a person's phone, have access to the files and be able to do stuff with it, which is a really, really scary error. Um, and this was, you know, picked up and was it was rated and logged with a international nonprofit group that does cybersecurity research and was considered, you know, and was given a, a criticality rating of something like 9.8 out of 10. So this is a really, really big mistake. Um, yeah, and then there were, and then at the time we spoke, they were still finding errors. So even if the, even if by now what had happened was the government had updated the app several times to patch out these errors and to fix them after the release you still had the issue where because the app was running or is running continuously in the background of people's phones, on Android phones at least, it means that the phone never gets a chance to update. It never it has to, never has a chance to check whether there's a new version. So even though these new updates have been released, people are still running the old versions and are still vulnerable to these early mistakes. Wow, those some of those errors are so hugely alarming. And when when the app first came out and there was it was in the media a lot, like a lot of the the debate was around the risk of of government spying on people or government tracking people. As sort of time has gone on, is that actually the main risk, or is that what these these tech experts that you've been speaking to are actually concerned about? Well, yeah, and actually that was, um, and I think that actually speaks to a very interesting part of our culture where our initial. Uh, 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 immediate instinct is to worry about, oh, yeah, the government's going to be spying on us, which, you know, in, at times and places in history can be a serious, a seriously bad issue. Um, and, and, you know, the government itself didn't help us along. For instance, in the, in the lead up to the launch, it, in order to get, to try and encourage people to take up, to download the app and to take part in it, they had an organization called the um, Cybersecurity Research Center, um, do what's good and do what they call a stress test of the app to check for privacy issues. Um, and this organization, basically its board is stacked with you know, representatives from some of the countries, you know, every, every intelligence agency in Australia. Um, so both your know, current and former. So you have, you know, uh, so essentially spies. Um, so these people were supposed to be checking the app for privacy, which doesn't really lend it confidence. Um, the problem is, is that the issue was not so much government spying because ultimately the government doesn't particularly care and judging from the development of the app, they're not really capable of understanding this to be able to use it in a way to spy on people. The issue was threats from private actors. So people who, and hostile private actors. So if you think about it more in terms of say, someone in a domestic violence relationship whose partner might be really tech savvy, they might use it to track that partner. Um, if you think about it in the sense of say, one of the, uh, uh, a 5G conspiracy theorist who, who is hostile to the whole idea of COVID-19 could then jerry-rig a system to walk into a pub and jam everyone's contact tracing out. So no one collects any information at that time. You have no idea if you've got it from someone in that room. Um, 
you know, and then you can go into various other examples of like cyber criminals and whatever. Um, but, but that, and so that was kind of, I think a, a message that kind of got lost in some of the um, worry and concern about what's going on here, because ultimately you had a government developed app that had more holes than Swiss cheese, introducing a bunch of vulnerabilities onto people's phone, not necessarily through maliciousness, but just through kind of uh, indifference and um, ignorance. It's also making me think of sort of the, the broader and ongoing debates about other government-run sort of technological schemes or databases, for example, the, the RoboDebt scheme and all the scandal around that. Would you like to speak at all to any of the connections that you perhaps perceive between what's been happening with the COVID Safe app and other sort of technological um, schemes or databases such as RoboDebt? Yeah, and that's actually a really good point, right? So this is happening against the backdrop. So this is just one thing, a part of like a whole range of other areas where government's trying to automate or, tech, you know, or um, inc- you know, uh, upgrade its technological capabilities. And we saw this with, say, RoboDebt, where the process of um, identifying and generating debts was automated and led to a massive, massive uh, error um, and, and a very costly loss, a series of lawsuits. Um, you see this elsewhere. I mean, Vanessa Teague, who I spoke to for the article on the Saturday paper, um, had previously done research into voting software. So there's this, there's this idea that you can then take, you can take voting software from being pen and paper to being electronic. But then to do that, you need to heavily encrypt that software and prevent it from being tampered with because, you know, the risk of vote tampering, you know, when you have something pen and paper, those things sit in storage for forever. So if someone has a question about the number of votes in an election, you can go back and count them. But with electronic figures, someone could easily change something without being traced. So if you don't take care of that, you've got a problem. And Vanessa Teague, who does cybersecurity research, essentially found issues in the cryptography used to, you know, to protect that voting software. And part of the reason for this and why you get these mistakes is because government has to date been incredibly um, untransparent about how it goes about these processes. So a lot of the ways in which it develops these initiatives or ideas is you know, relies on security services to either develop, vet, or check stuff. It relies on contractors and consultants who you know, pay a lot of money. And you know the process of actually researching, site, doing crypto, cryptographic or cybersecurity research in Australia is um, borderline criminalized. And so again, to use Vanessa Teague as an example, she's previously been threatened with jail time for doing this basic research and, and pointing out errors. Um, when if there was a more uh, when when in order to solve this you need more accountability and more transparency in how you go through the process so people can point out those flaws and they can be fixed quickly but that kind of runs counter to how the government has set up its processes on this stuff today so i believe that the covid safe app is yet to find a single case of covid19 that hasn't been found by human contract traces so it appears that like it doesn't actually do what it promises it's not like sunscreen as prime minister scott morrison promised um where to from here well and that's interesting itself because if you ask the government officials that they say well no that, that that's proof that the app is actually working if it's finding the same cases as the manual contact traces that means you know we're verifying our you know verifying our work on this um the problem is is that even the metrics that they use to understand this isn't it that don't always make sense so for instance you'll hear the figure quoted of six million active users uh, six million downloads right now that's different between active users because you may download something but you know you may not actively use something and the annoying thing is that you know you can 
can work out how many active users there are on the system at any one time, but they don't do this. Instead, they rely on the you know six million downloads as because it's, it sounds like a better figure. So we don't actually even know how many people are using the app to begin with. Um, and so in terms of where to from here, uh, so far, the government have been very happy with their performance. They think they've done a great job. They're maintaining this. They're encouraging people to continue downloading the app. Um, whether individuals do, I guess it's up to them. And if individuals want to find out more about, say, some of the concerns that people such as those you've spoken to in the tech industry have raised, how can they find out more about the COVID Safe app? Uh, well, there was a really good uh, po- there was a really good article that was posted by um, Jim Musarad and some of the other people who were doing research on this, listing um, all the errors in very plain language. I linked to it on Twitter. If you scroll back to my Twitter, you- you'll be able to find it. Um, I can probably provide a link as well if you want to share it online. Um, but just it- it- yeah, in the interest of giving a fully informed suite of information to make decisions off of. How can listeners find out more about your work, Royce? Uh, well, you know, if I'm going to plug my pluggables, um, I, I, run, I run a newsletter called Raising Hell. So if you want to follow my work, um, look it up on Substack. Or you, again, my Twitter feed is the best place to go to find that stuff. Um, I'd appreciate any followers. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking with us on Thursday Breakfast. No, thank you for having me. It's good to hear from you. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855am on your dial. You've just been hearing from journalist Royce Kermelovs, who's been talking with us about some of the flaws dangers and limitations of the Australian government's COVID-safe contact tracing app. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. Next up, we're going to hear a recording by Samad Abdul from the Manus Recording Project Collective's new project, Where Are You Today? Every day for a month, beginning last Saturday on August 1st, subscribers will receive a text message with a new 10-minute audio recording from Fahad Bandesh, Fahad Ramati, Samad Abdul, Shamindan Kanapathi, Thanush Selvaraj, or Yasin Abdullah. These men, seeking asylum by boat, were forcibly transferred to Manus Island by the Australian government nearly seven years ago. Now they are held in hotels or detention centres in Port Moresby, Melbourne or Brisbane. You can subscribe to the project by texting HELLO to 0488 Eight four five nine five one. Now we hear from Samad. Hello everyone. This is Samad from Manas Island Detention Centre, and uh, currently I'm staying in Port Moresby. I'm so happy. After a long time, I'm getting a chance 
to talk to you people to just let you know about my current situation about my current life and the most important thing is that how am i feeling today um i'm not really sure what to say here because i think many and many people already know that we are staying in detention center for a very very long time it's been years and years and years we are just waiting for something that we really want we deserve it it's it's our freedom it's not only me that i have been locked up for many many years it's it's my emotion it's my feeling it's my family feeling everything everything has been just locked up and and sometime i'm just thinking what should i do now sometime i just feel so hopeless and helpless just even i even i even cannot move myself but still i have a small hope and um, i don't know when will i'll be able to get my freedom it's it's not it's not easy to just stay positive all the time or just stay normal there is not even a bit of happiness but i'm still trying my best to wake up early in the morning to do some workout to just maintain my physical and mental health and the rest of the day sometime i'm just confused and i don't know what to do just lying down all the time on my bed and listening to music or watching a movie i even cannot go outside to walk with myself i cannot carry my phone in my pocket and i cannot go outside lots and lots of my friends got hold up they lost everything including me i was hold up too last year sometime i feel like i should go and just swim beach side just to relax the mind just to touch the sea water but it is especially staying in port mosby and if you want to go by yourself it is just impossible sometime i'm thinking let's compare manus island and port mosby 
Of course, both are jail for us. Both were both are both are just detention center for us. But at least in Manus, we were a group of friends. We were like sometimes we can go outside for a walk. We can go to just swim in the beach side with friends. At least there was a small activity to do, but still it was a very horrible time. But right now, lots of my friends, they already settled down and I'm so happy for them. And right now I don't know what to say or what to tell you. Sometimes I want to just do something, but I cannot. <clears throat> I really uh, appreciate um, Michael Green and the rest of the team and people who are taking parts in this project. I'm really thankful of them that at least there is something that we can record and uh, there are some people in Australia who really care for us, who really want to hear us. So um, I don't know what to say more about my life. But if I just say something in just short way that every day is a challenge for us. Every day is a nightmare for us. I don't understand why Australian government took a very, very big time to just resettle this few hundreds people. I'm happy that lots of people already settled down, but my question is why some people are still suffering here? What is our crime to suffer more? I'm waiting for my U.S. interview, which I did my first interview with U.S. It was in December 2018. And I'm still waiting for them to hear something from them. But I don't understand why they are I mean, why they did not still reply to me? I'm keep emailing them, keep emailing them, but nothing is happening. Waiting for something for a very long time is a tough job.
I just kept quiet because I just got so emotional. I just the only thing I can do is to just request all of you anybody who is listening to my recording today if you can do something please do that please support humanity some of us we are here we are so so struggling here it's not easy to just wait for a small freedom for a very very long time <clears throat> once again i would like to thank everybody for this project i just woke up as i said that i did not eat anything i'll just go and uh, make a tea or make breakfast for myself and we'll try to do some workout just to, to to just relax my mind and i will see how the day will go that was a recording by samad abdul from Where Are You Today, a new project by the Manus Recording Project Collective. You can find out more about the project by visiting their website, manusrecordingproject.com, or you can subscribe to the project by texting HELLO to 0488-845-951. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. All right. So now it's time for another track. And this one is a new one from Kian. Uh, It's Better Things.
Just then, we heard Kian's new single, "Better Things." You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Next, we hear audio from a Free Palestine Melbourne forum on the Palestinian struggle in the era of annexation that took place on July 22nd, a couple of weeks ago now. So we'll listen to excerpts from analyst and former legal advisor Diana Butu, writer and academic activist Dr. Yara Hawari. Both, who both live in Palestine, as well as Melbourne or Nam-based journalist Maher Mugrabi. First up, we hear from Yara Hawari. So up until, um, I would say, about mid-June, um, Palestine, let's say the West Bank and Gaza, have re- a relatively low number of infections. We're talking about 800 in, in, in total um, uh, and this was sort of being dubbed as a, as a success story uh, from the Palestinian Authority that, you know, the sort of immediate lockdown um, and indeed uh, the West Bank and Gaza did lockdown a lot quicker than many other places, particularly um, uh, Europe uh, and the US. Um, and so it was being d- dubbed as a success uh, story. What's happened in the last month has been pretty drastic and, and, and Deanna mentioned um, that this was, you know, the same for for within 48. But in the last month, there's been um, uh, uh, been an increase in infections, um, an astronomical increase in infections. So we've gone from about that 800 to let's say maybe a thousand uh, mid June to to a nearly total of 11,000. So we've seen a 10,000 increase in recorded cases um, over the last month, uh, and that's quite. Uh, severe and drastic and and if you look at the sort of relative to the population this is one of the highest uh, infection rates in the world um now uh, a lot of that has been um uh, uh in the hebron uh, governorate which is that you know the largest governor population wise um uh, but there is also a high number um, of infections in, in particularly vulnerable communities, including in refugee camps, where, of course, you can imagine uh, people live in very cramped conditions and the possibility of, of self-isolating or quarantining is, is, is impossible, uh, where you have families uh, really living in, in, in very small spaces. Um, now, uh, I think this all needs to be put in the context of... Um, uh, a healthcare system in both the West Bank and Gaza that has suffered uh, uh, for decades um, from Israeli military occupation and also donor uh, de-development. And I'll explain that um, in a minute. But the, the decades of Israeli military occupation have, of course, uh, led to um, all kinds of uh, issues within the healthcare system, namely acute shortages in medical supplies and staff um, it, 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 um, very sort of limited facilities being being built, 
Um, indeed, uh, Gaza hospitals pretty much constantly run at zero stock, which means that they have less than a month's supply at all times. Um, uh, I, I'm going to run by some figures here so that you can sort of get a get an um, an overview of what the healthcare system looks like. In the West Bank alone, there are only 255 intensive care beds. That's for a population of 3 million. In Gaza, there are 120 um, intensive care beds for a population of 2, men, two million. In, in the West Bank and Gaza combined, there are only 6,440 hospital beds. Um, now, uh, I mentioned earlier the, the word de-development. Uh, de-development is a term um, that was written about quite extensively um, by uh, the scholar Sarah Roy in, in, in context in the context of Gaza. Yes. But what it means is that actually this uh, the sort of donor uh, culture, the, the 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 donor context means that um, Palestinian uh, civil society and Palestinian infrastructure institution have actually uh, not been developed, have actually faced. Uh, uh, a purposeful and deliberate uh, process of de-development. And to give you an example, um, health clinics in, in Gaza have actually gone down uh, over the last decade from, from 56 health clinics to 49, and yet the population has increased massively. Um, additionally, uh, in the West Bank and Gaza, you can't even get the uh, above basic health care. So operations such as you know, heart operations, anything to do with cardiac care, cancer, eye surgery, all of these things, you have to be referred um, uh, to a hospital in East Jerusalem or in 48. And um, this is at the mercy of the Israelis giving you a permit to do so. So overall, the health system um, is, uh, is, is pretty bad. Uh, and I would say that it's collapsing under the, the current uh, pan, uh, crisis. And I want to stress importantly that, you know, Israel is not a regime in this case, which is, you know, um, adding or exasperating the situation. Israel is actually directly responsible for this situation uh, in, in the West Bank and Gaza. And uh, I've dubbed it as a regime of comorbidity, uh, meaning that it, is, it has direct responsibility. And indeed, uh, in, the, in the case of the West Bank and Gaza as an occupying power, it has uh, a responsibility under international law um, to provide for and to take care of uh, the, the, the very people that they occupy. Now, of course, the, this, this is not being done. And actually, there is a rather sick narrative um, that was going around at the beginning of the pandemic that there was cooperation between the Palestinian Authority and, and the Israelis, and maybe that this would lead to some kind of peace that finally the two sides are seeing eye to eye. In reality, what this cooperation was, was Israel allowing tidbits of medical supplies donated by international donors into the West Bank and not even allowing the full amount in. So Israel is being praised for doing something which it should be doing itself. That was Yara Hawari speaking at the Free Palestine Melbourne Forum on the annexation. Next up, we hear from Diana Butu. Um, I want to be clear, there, there isn't a July 1st deadline. It's, it was actually, it was a July 1st, um, first date that was available. And, and there's a difference between the two. So in the agreement that was signed between Gantz and between Netanyahu, Part of that agreement was the was, as I mentioned earlier, which is that they they can begin the process of annexation. And in that agreement, 
um, there were two elements to it, which is that either the, 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 the Likud or whoever, there can be a, a, a law that is submitted, a bill that's submitted in through the Knesset, through the parliament and approved and uh, Gantz's people will not object. Or they can do it through a second means, which is through the cabinet, the members of the cabinet that can also introduce a bill. And also Gantz and his people will not object. They won't, they won't go against. So July 1st, the only like magic about it was that that was the first date that that process was available. It wasn't a deadline in any way, shape or form. And the fact that um, the world started focusing on it as a deadline was a little bit um, not only incorrect, but it kind of has given it has given Netanyahu a pass, which is to say that now that that date has passed, today is what today is the twenty second of July. People are saying, "Phew, well, we averted um, annexation. Let's go back to normal." That's not the case at all. So um, I want to be clear that people know that that this has not been something that has been averted. All that July 1st was, was the first day that they could begin the process of it. It wasn't a deadline to actually do it. So what is being proposed? We don't know. What we do know is we know bits and pieces of the various plans, but they have not issued a comprehensive um, plan in terms of what it is that they're going to do. And, and this is also very important um, to keep in mind why it is that they're not doing it. So let's talk about what, they, what we do know. What we do know is that the various plans that they're talking about um, include either the all of this, all of them include the entirety of the settlements. Um, and then others of them include annexing the parts of the Jordan Valley. And then others of them include annexing um, the parts of the, the um, Western part as well, such as the major settlement blocks in close to the Bethlehem region. Any one of those annexation plans that they put forward is detrimental and causes harm to Palestinians. Um, and I will explain what that does in just a second. But the second element that we know is that in their plans for annexation, what they've said is that they are going to take the land, but not the people. Um, in, in fact, in, in some places, they've already come forward and said that they learned the mistakes from the annexations that they did in, uh, in, in previous, in, when it came to Jerusalem, where they extended um, residency to Palestinians in East Jerusalem, not citizenship. And, uh, and just so that we're clear, granting permanent residence to people who've been there for generations um, is not only abhorrent, but it's also what they're not doing is they're not making sure that these people have any permanence. There's nothing permanent about permanent residency. In the Israeli mindset, in the way that it works, is that if a person who is from Jerusalem leaves Jerusalem for any significant period of time, or they acquire citizenship, whether through marriage or by immigration or whatever, their residency can be revoked. And we've seen that over 14,000 Palestinians have had their residency stripped since 1967, and more and more are being stripped as well, the, the ones that we actually don't know about. So when it comes to annexation, we know that they're not going to extend citizenship, one. We know that they're not going to extend permanent residency, two. And we do know that they're going to take the land, but not the people. In the taking the land part, again, there's been a lot of focus on 
what's the minimal amount that Israel can take? And there's been some discussion back and forth between Israel and the donor community. And it's important to bear in mind a few things. First is that any taking of the land is illegal. It's, it's the, the basic rule number one of international law is you can't take the territory of another state. The reason that that is the very first rule of international law is that the whole point of international law is to try to make sure that states are not engaged in endless wars. And stealing land, of course, is one of the ways to ensure that there is war. Um, so this is why it's a basic tenet that, you, that thou shalt not steal um, and cannot steal land of another country. The second element of it is not only is it illegal, but the way that Israel has built the settlements and designed the settlements is in such a way that it, they are supposed to cause harm. That's their, their, that is their modus operandi, is to cause harm. And so in between, they've made sure that in order to get from one Palestinian town to another Palestinian town, if there is a settlement there, you have to cross through a checkpoint or through a roadblock or through um, through any or through uh, through any other means that there isn't any contiguity between the two. Once you have a settlement there, you have a checkpoint. Once you have a checkpoint there, you also have um, many cases have walls or some shape or form of the wall. Once you have a checkpoint there, you also have soldiers there. That's the whole point of it. That's the whole point of the settlements is to make sure that Palestinians are never able to live freely. So whether we're talking about the small um, annexation that, that some within the cabinet are pushing for or the bigger annexation, the effect is the same, which is that it's the, the, the whole point of it is to deny Palestinians their freedom. It's to deny their ability to live um, with, uh, with any control over their lives. And that's the whole point of it. That was Deanna Butu speaking at the Free Palestine Melbourne Forum on Annexation. We hear now from our final speaker, Maher Mugrabi. We've been lost in arguments about whether or not what Israel does constitutes apartheid, uh, arguments which, in my opinion, are completely pointless um, uh, for a very long time. What I would say is that what has uh, changed is that um, some 30 years ago it was decided uh, by a very different generation of uh, Western politicians and American politicians um, that a process had to begin in which uh, Palestinians were at least seen to be included, um, even if the nature of that inclusion was not always clear. Uh, I think uh, what has changed is that the international order, the liberal international order, the so-called rules-based international order, is now basically falling to pieces. Um, the major powers, uh, Russia, China, the United States, have no interest in it, in it anymore. Um, and that is um, symptomatic of other countries as well, Brazil, uh, Hungary. Many of these countries now only refer to themselves in terms of uh, how they form their political horizons. Um, and what has happened in the, that context is that um, an old dream has resurfaced. And that dream is that you can decide the fate of Israelis and Palestinians without reference to Palestinians. Um, I remember a very long time ago, uh, people uh, talked about the non-existence of Palestine and the non-existence of Palestinians. And then during the uh, period after Madrid and Oslo, uh, suddenly everybody accepted that there was such a thing as a Palestinian and such a thing as a Palestinian uh, territorial rights. Um, 
what's happening now is that we're disappearing again. Um, the word Palestine is being forced out of the lexicon. Um, the idea of a Palestinian space is being forced out of the lexicon. And most importantly of all, uh, uh, a process is being designed where Israel and America are the two parties in any peace agreement. Um, and Palestinians don't need to be. I mean, I think it's very interesting that Jared Kushner talked about how Palestinians don't actually have to trust him. Um, to accept the agreement. And I think Naftali Bennett, long before Jared Kushner said, the great thing about my peace plan is that it doesn't require Palestinian consent. And I think this is the, I think this is the fundamental difference is that now we're back in a situation, which is the situation I should say that obtained before 1990 uh, for well over a century, which is that Palestinians consent isn't required. We've gone back to the position of, of being a non-people who don't need to be consulted. Um, uh, that is one of, I have to say, sadly, it's one of the results of the so-called peace process that went on in the interim, the years between 1990 and now. Um, but basically what has happened is that our agency, uh, a series of sort of dead political ends was created for us, and then our agency was just dismissed. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, we don't have a major power sponsor in any sense. We don't have an international community united behind us. Um, we certainly don't have an Arab world uh, united behind us. In fact, I would say probably that the major powers in the Arab world are more worried about what will happen in Libya than they are in what will happen to the Palestinians. Um, so, uh, you know, we're in a situation now where the question is, how do we recover our agency? How do we recover our ability to have an input into matters? And at a time when, as I said, international law, uh, and the idea of a rules-based international order, which is very much talked about here in Australia, it's paid lip service to, um, is in a, a decline, which nobody seems to be able to rescue it from. That was journalist Maher Mugrabi speaking at the Free Palestine Melbourne Forum on Annexation. And to wrap up, we hear some final words from Yara Hawari. There are opportunities uh, to, to move forward. And, and I think one of them is that changing narrative, that we're no longer talking about two states, that actually there is a one-state reality, that there is one regime that, that rules and governs over all the people from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. And the question now is not one state, two state. It's about how do we deal with this reality that exists on the ground? What do we want the world to look like? And I think these are existential questions for the international community. Um, it, there's, it's an existential question about the international legal regime. Um, and what happens in Palestine doesn't only happen in Palestine. We don't exist in a vacuum. You know, this is, this is a, a global situation. So if, if everything, all the violations that happen in Palestine, if Israel is allowed to continue unabated, that sets a precedence for elsewhere in the world. And, and I think that's slowly, uh, that's slowly um, you know, becoming a realization for, for many, many people. So that was Yara wrapping up the Free Palestine Melbourne Forum that took place a couple of weeks ago. If you want to hear the forum in full, it goes for about an hour and a half and you can just head over to Free Palestine Melbourne on Facebook and it's their pinned post. It always amazes me what we can fit into an hour and a half, folks. So just to recap on today's program, you heard part of a webinar discussion from the Melbourne Law School on Black Lives Matter, which featured Larissa Berendt, Alison Whitaker, Eddie Cubillo, Amy McGuire, and George Newhouse. 
You also heard a conversation between Max and journalist Royce Kermilovs on the Australian government's COVID safe contact tracing app. We then played a recording by Samad Abdul from the Manus Recording Project Collective's new project, Where Are You Today? And just a reminder, you can subscribe to the project by texting HELLO to 0488-845-951. And finally, we heard audio from a free Palestine Melbourne forum, which featured Diana Butu, Dr. Yara Hawari, and Maher Mograbi. If you tuned in partway through the show and want to listen to things we played earlier on, or if you'd like to revisit some of our previous shows, you can find our programs in podcast form on www.3cr.org.au slash Thursday breakfast. That's all we've got time for today. So take care, stay warm, and we'll be back with you next week. Next up, Lost in Science. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.